are here in the 37th day of the 49 day count of the Omer. And we're on that journey, the journey from being freed from being the servant class, the slave class at Pesach, we were freed. And now in this 49 day count at which we're at 37, we're mentally preparing for the holiday of Shavuot, uh, the holiday on which we bring our offering to God at the temple, we celebrate with family and friends, and we declare with open hands and open hearts our gratitude for the many blessings that we have. Referred to the socioeconomic framework, the new norms that are established in the Torah of the sabbatical year, the freedom of debts, the freedom for nature. And here we are with a new attitude toward the underprivileged, the poor in our society. We're commanded for shared offerings, leaving the corners of our fields for them, and, and eventually redeeming them. I mean, Leviticus's view is not of an underclass that deserves their hardship. Rather, it sees socioeconomic hardship as a temporary state one in which those within it are making their way toward redemption to better times and the mutual responsibility all of us have to help them do so. You know, we often think of Shavuot and the book of Ruth as about the origin of conversion, but more likely it's placed at the end of the Omer count because it's a story of redemption. It's a dramatization of the contents of today's parasha. The tension is whether anyone will redeem Ruth at all. Will those who have enough Will those who have been blessed like Boaz hold on to their blessings as deserved, earned, self-made, according to proper inheritance? Or will they, like God at Pesach, redeem their distant kinsmen, someone very strange from themselves, actually, from oppression? Will they fulfill Torah's call to make only temporary the state the socioeconomically deprived live in, or will they fall back into the consciousness that the poor responsible for their own state and those of privilege somehow have deserved it or earned it as a proper part of the system. Leviticus ends with demanding that we see poverty and debt as temporary states, a combination of poor decisions, sure, that's gonna be a part of it, but also a lot of luck, the uncontrollable, like weather, disease, larger forces, and of course, circumstances one's born into. The sabbatical and jubilee years that end Leviticus demand that we cancel debts and even return land holdings, the basis of capital, to a new starting place. A paradigm in which poverty is seen as a temporary state is definitely not the paradigm I see in our country as it's practiced now. If anything, we have a very different self-understanding in the rhetoric of our social compact, one that seems to see society along a simplistic and actually scientifically incorrect Darwinian paradigm. During this pandemic, the way we view those at the top and at the bottom of socioeconomic ladder has been especially revealed. Is our picture of our social compact, like one like in Leviticus, one in which we are mutually intertwined, mutually responsible for one another? Or is the picture not of one organism full of dynamic interconnectedness? Among the weird stuff that goes on in our society, I found interesting was there's a woman who was put up to and paid to charge Dr. Anthony Fauci with sexual assault when he was younger. And she recorded a conversation in which he was being put up to it and paid for it. And this was recorded by Jacob Wall and Jack Berkman, the, the two men who put her up to it. They said, let me tell you something, Diana. This guy shut down the country. 
He put 40 million people out of work. And in a situation like that, you have to make up whatever you have to to make up to, make up to stop that train because that's the way life works. Mother nature has to clean the barn every so often. How real is it? Who knows? So what if 1% of the population goes? So what if you lose 400,000 people? 200,000 will probably be elderly. The other 200,000, the bottom of society. Sometimes you gotta clean out the barn. If it's real, it's a positive thing for God's sake. Now I know that's an extreme view, but I wonder if some of the element of thinking of the way we're treating who is affected by the virus is influenced by a paradigm that would be very different from Leviticus's, very different from seeing those who are vulnerable as somehow parasitic rather than as family, rather than as those in a temporary state that need to be redeemed. Obviously, we're all influenced by the fact that we live in a country where a black jogger, Ahmed Arbery, can be pursued by two white men in a pickup truck who shoot him dead and they are not charged until a video emerges. And we ask why the first prosecutor, the local prosecutor, George Barnhill, said that no crime had been committed. Because Arbery had tried to wrest a shotgun from Travis McMichael before being shot, Barnhill wrote in a letter to the police chief that he had acted in self-defense when they confronted and shot, and shot him. The racial element to our social contract is that a black man jogging publicly is not an act of liberty, but two white men deciding to chase and confront him are expressing their liberty. Same logic goes into seeing this crime as not prosecutable, but the same prosecutor decided to charge and prosecute a black woman for trying to help another black voter use a voting machine. In his recent article for The Atlantic, Adam Serwer points out these problems of the dimension that we're, how we're treating the victims of the coronavirus and the racial and other aspects of the social contract that we think we have in a time of pandemic. He writes, the implied terms of the racial contract are visible everywhere for those willing to see them. A 12 year old with a toy gun is a dangerous threat. Armed militias drawing beads on, a federal, on federal agents are heroes of liberty. Struggling white farmers in Iowa taking billions in federal assistance are hardworking Americans down on their luck, as I would add, in the temporary state that need to be redeemed, while struggling single parents in cities using food stamps are welfare queens. Black Americans struggling in the cocaine epidemic are a bio underclass created by a pathological culture where we hear things like fathers not taking responsibility, but white Americans struggling with opioid addiction are a national tragedy. Poor European immigrants who flocked to him in America with virtually no immigration restrictions came the right way, while poor Central American immigrants evading a Baroque and unforgiving system are gang members and terrorists, in his words. So the coronavirus epidemic has rendered the way we see the socioeconomically deprived in new ways and invisible ways, in ways that, take it, that underscore its racial element. Once the disproportionate impact of the epidemic was revealed to the American political and financial elite, many began to regard the rising death toll less as a national emergency than as an inconvenience. Temporary measures meant to prevent the spread of the disease were viewed as 
the foulest tyranny. And the lives of workers on the front lines of the pandemic, such as meatpackers and transportation workers and grocery clerks, have been deemed so worthless in his words that legislators want to immunize their employers from liability in the legislation before Congress, even as they force them to work under unsafe conditions. In East New York, police assault black residents for violating social distancing rules, while in lower Manhattan, they dole out masks and smiles to white pedestrians. He argues that our policies and thoughts around how to handle the pandemic does relate to our views of the relationship of our classes. And while the radical cleaning the barn arguments may seem absurd, there do seem to be traces in what we're thinking today. We have to admit that the disease disproportionately affects those who cannot afford to miss work, who cannot afford to telecommute. We're talking about grocery store employees, delivery drivers, construction workers, those who work in nursery homes as orderlies, those who are in jails and prisons, those in factories tied to essential industries. Is it just me that sees people of the classes who should be sharing their blessings, pushing those who cannot afford to miss work, the bus drivers and the nannies and the delivery drivers and all, to return to work because we say they're our heroes? Is there something self-serving in that? Are we couching it in language that is somehow to their benefit so they can make money they need to survive, so they can have their liberty? I mean. I listen to these, and I'm sure you do too, these reports by the people I talk to, nannies who say, you know, my employer thinks they're doing me a favor by paying me another two to $3 an hour, but I'm scared that their kids are coughing on me and, they're, and, and I'm exposed to all of this stuff. And they think they're doing me a favor by keeping me at work. And when they, you say, well, what do you want? I wish they would help pay me for not working. And that's not even on the table. I hear about Kroger workers who say, you know, I'm getting sneezed on. True stories, grocery store workers who tell me, you know, when it all started, we were taken in the back room and given one of these pep talks where we do like a cheer. And it's like, we're gonna, it's like, isn't that a little self-serving that we're saying, let's use those people who are at the lowest part of the socioeconomic ladder on some level and then call them heroes so that they can continue to serve. We all know that though the full picture remains unclear, researchers have found that majority black counties account for more than half of coronavirus cases and nearly 60% of deaths. And we know that racial minorities are disproportionately employed in many of the professions that are most affected. We also know that as even the Wisconsin Supreme Court was trying to weigh these important issues of liberty and freedom and what the state can do, Nevertheless, the Chief Justice Patience Rogensack asked for a distinction between the normal coronavirus numbers of the regular folks in Brown County of Wisconsin with the meatpacking folks removed from that number so she could better understand how it's affecting the regular folks. I don't know Patience, I don't know her honor. And maybe she meant to turn it to a different way of understanding it. But I found that way of distinguishing among the members of our society very, very different. Leviticus ends with the picture of mutual responsibility that does not deceive the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder as permanent nor as um, a class of servants. 
The Torah's picture is of a different underlying paradigm of what society is. We should govern our ways in handling these decisions. Boaz didn't redeem Ruth by making her his servant. He redeemed Ruth by acknowledging her as family. <laughs>